Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to talk tonight on wise effort. This is a, a key issue in practice, as perhaps the thought has occurred to you, how much is enough? Or how much is too much? Am I doing it right? Has that thought crossed your mind? Am I doing it right? Am I being lazy or a macho meditator? What's the right way? It's a key issue and I'd like to talk about it in, uh, two, in two different ways. Wise effort, first uh, with regards to the balance of effort, and uh, then spend a bit of time on the classical definition of right effort in terms of the four right efforts. The word balance is a key in practice. Before the Buddha was enlightened, as probably you know his, his story, he lived a life of extremes for the first 29 years of his life, having all the sense pleasures one could, could want, the ultimate, the ultimate hedonistic lifestyle. And then when he left the, the palace um, and went on his quest, he spent the next six years practicing the most austere practices and uh, just getting into a self-mortification and uh, the extreme of uh, not indulging, or not even um, satisfying sometimes one's own bodily needs. So after doing that and spending time on both, both ends, he arrived at the middle path, the middle way, which is about balance, not overindulging, not, uh, not, not negating what's here, but seeing that balance is a key to an awakened heart, an awakened mind. And balance is seen throughout the teachings in different lists. There's the seven factors of enlightenment. There are three factors that are energizing and three that are stilling with mindfulness being the, the balancing factor. There's the five spiritual faculties which include concentration balanced by uh, energy and faith balanced by wisdom. And again, mindfulness is the, the balancing factor. And even in the moment of mindfulness, we are practicing balance between not grasping at the pleasant and not pushing away the unpleasant. Before, just before the awakening experience in the classical model of of awakening in the Theravadan tradition, one opens up to high equanimity, a, a deep and profound balance out of which the awakened mind shines through. Why is balance so important? Well, when we're off balance, you know what that's like, right? We can't see clearly. We 
get into toppling forward or grasping at our thoughts. We get confused. We believe our stories precisely because we're off balance and we're either contracted or don't have that clarity to see clearly. When we're balanced, we're centered. There is clarity, there's understanding, there's spaciousness, there's an openness, there's calm and alertness out of which that equanimity is possible. So what we're doing here, one way you can think of this, is learning to training our minds to be balanced in the present moment. Balance is not a static state. So it's not like, oh, there's this much that I should do to be in balance. Because everything is changing, there's a dynamic to our energy, to our clarity, to our uh, mindfulness. And it's a bit like learning to ride a bike. It's not like you say, oh, this is how much I should I should be in the middle. No, it's a continual adjustment. And the same is true as we practice here. One very key aspect of balance is with regards to effort. And in the practice, it's easy to go overboard on either side. If you're a type A personality and you become a type A meditator, it's not, not uncommon to be pouncing on your experience or to really want to do it so you get a gold star in your mind. Yes, I'm doing it right. <laughs> Nobody's giving you gold stars. And chances are, when you do that, the gold stars are few and far between when you have that attitude. I, as a perfectionist, I've seen a, I've seen a perfectionist streak in, in me um, many times over, over the years. Um, in fact, I remember now, my, my 50th uh, birthday, my son, who was then, uh, let's see, he was about uh, 10, he, uh, he said, he gave a toast to, to his dad. And he said, my dad does just about everything well. I thought, wow, that's interesting. And he had this impeccable timing. And he said, he only does things that he knows he's going to do well, but he does them well. He really kind of, and he kind of nailed me on that, you know. But um, I've gotten a lot better at uh, venturing out. He just was having some fun. But I've seen that perfectionist streak in me. And one day it occurred to me that the best you can do as a perfectionist is break even. You do it right. You do it perfect. Okay, I did it perfect that time. What about the next? You You don't even have the satisfaction and the delight in doing something well when you've got that high a standard for yourself. So it's, it's really not doing yourself a service. You can't really enjoy the, the delight of, of your practice when you're always measuring up and seeing, did I do it enough? Then the other side of the coin, of, cor- of course, that some of us who aren't type A know quite well, which is, well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not, you know. <laughs> Who cares? You know, I'll just kind of take it easy. This is a a time for compassion this week, and I'll just uh, 
just stay here in bed. That would be a very compassionate <laughs> thing to do. Good luck. This takes some energy and effort to arrive here in the present moment. It's so hard to just be here, even when somebody is saying, bring your attention back to the breath. Oh yeah, right, okay, got to do that. So, realizing this, it takes a wholeheartedness, as I said the first evening, a wholeheartedness, a willingness to be here and to bring yourself back when you're, when you're not. And in that balance of effort, there's a, a, um, a balance of alertness and a receptivity. So, you might ask, how do I know if I'm doing it enough? How do I know if I'm doing it too much? So, what I think is the key in seeing what is needed is just asking yourself, what do I need right now to support being with my experience fully without a struggle? Because the struggle is extra. When you feel your body tightening, when you feel your mind getting contracted, if you feel the walls closing in, this is a clue. Okay, it's a little bit too much. But if you're so laid back that you're really not here, then you need to, it would be helpful to realize why you're here and to put your heart into the practice. It can get particularly confusing sometimes when we hear different messages of what good practice is. And you can confirm any particular stance that you have if you're a Type A type, well, there's the teachings, practice like your hair is on fire. That's, a, that's a, a very famous line. The Buddha says, we're like children in a burning uh, house up in the attic, playing with our toys, not realizing how precious and rare this opportunity is. I practiced with one uh, great Burmese master who talked about what is commonly referred to as heroic effort. Okay. And he was big on, it could never be enough, it seemed. And it's like, if your leg is, is hurting, he, his line was, abandon all concern for the body. That kind of <laughs> woke, woke you up. And if your leg is falling off, just note it. Falling off, falling <laughs> off, falling off. <laughs> now, there is a power and a value to practicing with that wholeheartedness. As I said the first night, and I learned this the hard way, it's very important to have a spaciousness and a lightness of heart along with giving that, that wholehearted intention. Then there's the other side, the other aspect of teachings, where you're just saying, okay, Simple and easy. My, my, one of my teachers, Manindraji, who uh, we've all studied with and who is Joseph Goldstein's main teacher, would just say, simple and easy, simple and easy. Empty phenomena rolling on. Just settle back and rest in the moment. A very profound and wise teacher. Ajahn Buddhadasa, also one of the, the great uh, masters of the 20th century, say, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. Okay. 
He was a very popular teacher. Right? Here. Uh, here's a Tibetan uh, beautiful reading. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. So, how do you know who's right? The thing is, they're both right. Both of those attitudes have their place and are essential as we're doing this practice because it takes some diligence, it takes some effort to land here in the present moment. As I mentioned, I think it was here, I mentioned that one, one teacher calling it manual labor, that I mentioned that here? No? Oh, it was, a, it was a class the other night. He's just kind of saying, okay, come on back, come on back to the moment. It takes, if, especially if you can come back with a great kindness, but have you noticed how many times you've come back today? Hopefully you've come back when you've wandered, okay? <laughs> Every time you wander, if you come back, after a while, you start to land here. And it takes, for most people, about three days. Perhaps you sense that you're a bit more present than you were when you first got here. It works if you keep on coming back without any judgment for being away, without any, any ruminating that you're not a good meditator. It's just the way the mind works. Okay, come on back. As you start to land here in the present moment, once you're here and in the present, there's nothing that you need to do or make happen to be here more in the present. And in fact, when you're quite connected with the experience, any kind of additional efforting to make it a better moment takes you right out of connection with the moment. Because then, from you go from being to a simple being, resting and connecting and being alive, being the moment, to a mode of becoming. And so, there is this doing the practice until you are simply here, and then there's a being the moment. Right now, just for a moment, close your eyes, okay? And don't strain or try to make anything particular happen. Let yourself just rest completely and feel life moving through you. Let the mind be spacious and open, just receiving the moment as it is, as you feel life moving through this form. And you can open your eyes. That wasn't so hard, was it? That's it. 
That's it. Simply being present for your life. It can be in a very relaxed, open, simple and easy way, as Manindraji says. It's not easy to maintain that. And so you'll find your mind wandering off, and then, okay, come on back, and now just be here again. So that's the reconciliation between this heroic effort to be here and a kind of ease and receptivity to just relax in the moment. A few things about this balance of effort. One is, we often make the mistake of equating our effort with the results, with what we're experiencing. Oh, my mind is so busy, I must not be doing it right. Or, oh, I've got all of this emotion and I just can't be still and feel my breath. I must not be doing it right. Or, oh, everybody around me is having some deep, profound catharsis and here I am just with my breath. I must not be doing it right. You've got, we all have these ideas of what good practice will look like. Just notice what your ideas in your mind are. That is what you are trying to conform your practice into, and that is, is really not where it's at. Because your practice, your experience, is just unfolding as it, as it does. And so the more you try to make something happen, the less you're able to be with things just as they are. That's when it, get, that's when it gets frustrating. So just being with things as they are, that's good practice. You heard Sally talk about the hindrances last night. Don't think that when you're doing it right, you will be a hindrance-free yogi. That's not the way it works. So you might find yourself at ease and at peace, and then all of a sudden, oh, wouldn't it be nice if, and there's the grasping mind. That doesn't have to be a problem. When you become mindful of the grasping, oh, this is how grasping works. Here you are once again. When you are mindful of the doubt or mindful of restlessness or the aversion, that moment of mindfulness is just as profound and liberating as a moment of feeling the breath come in and out. So it's never too late not to not to set up your, your mind saying, oh, this is what it would look like. Again, we have all kinds of ideas about what it would look like, and then we can get frustrated by it. You can be walking, doing the walking practice, and the comparing mind kicks in so easily, right? There you are, just walking nice and rhythmic and fairly slow. Then you see somebody going really slow. <laughs> God, I got a long way to go, okay? Or a couple of hours later, you're really into it and feeling connected and somebody's going slowly and you can say, oh, who are they trying to impress, you know? <laughs> can work the other way too. Somebody is, you're going there, just going into it and getting into the relatively groovy, slow walking. Somebody races by you. And you think, God, don't they get it? Just kind of, where are they going? 
later on that day, you can be trying to go slow. Somebody goes faster and you say, God, they're just themselves. They're not trying to impress anybody. I wish I could just be so natural and unpretentious. <laughs> so it's all the stories that we tell ourselves that we then judge and see, okay, am I doing it well? I'm not doing it well. It's a tremendous relief to realize you have no control over what your experience is. That might sound discouraging, but it's great news because then you don't have to blame yourself or take credit for whatever is going on. For me, a huge shift in my practice was realizing I can't control how mindful I am. I can't control how concentrated I am. You ever come into a sitting and say, I'm going to be concentrated if it kills me. You know, <laughs> it might if you have that attitude. You know. It doesn't work that way. The one thing that you do have some input on is the sincere intention to be here as best you can. And when you see you've gone, to come back again. That's it. That's your end of the deal. And magically, that's all that's needed because the intention and the effort to be mindful starts to develop mindfulness. And the mindfulness starts to build on itself and develop into a concentration or concentrated mindfulness. What is an interesting paradox is that although it takes effort initially, these, particularly these first few days, to just keep on bringing yourself back, that wholehearted effort, if it's done in a balanced way, actually leads to a kind of effortlessness in practice. It's actually easier, although it might not seem this way, it's actually easier to be doing 100% effort than 70% effort or 50% effort. Why? And I'll talk about what 100% effort might look like so you don't get some idea uh, that, that might throw you off. But the effort to be mindful as you bring your attention here and the mindfulness grows, then you see more. And when you see more, things become more interesting. The stronger the mindfulness is, then you get to see lots of things. And then it becomes quite an interesting show. The more interesting, the more you want to pay attention. The more you want to pay attention, the more mindful you become. So it's this kind of spiral towards greater mindfulness as the interest and the, um, the clarity grow. The other way is, well, okay, I'll do a little spurt of mindfulness, then I'll just take a break. A little spurt of mindfulness, then I'll just kick back. The mindfulness doesn't have a chance to build on itself, so you don't see as much. That's when we want a little bit of stimulation and a hit of entertainment, which is what we're used to wanting, and things become boring. When they become boring, you don't want to pay attention as much. You're looking for something stronger. And so it leads to a feeling of discouragement. Oh, who wants to pay attention to breath? We just had one a moment ago, so big <laughs> deal. <you know. laughs> and you move down that spiral. 
So, in the beginning, that wholeheartedness requires some greater intention, but as you develop it, it, it really bears fruit. 100% effort does not mean turning up the jets all the time. It means seeing where your energy is at and then seeing, as I said earlier, how you can best meet the moment. And if you find that you're getting really grim and serious and heavy, then what you need is spaciousness. Just relax. Uh, one of my favorite uh, teachers, quotable teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, who's going to be coming here later on this year, a, a very wise and, and practical teacher. He says, sometimes we get too serious about everything, totally lacking in joy and happiness, no sense of humor. We just repress everything. Gladden the mind. Be relaxed and at ease. Take all the time in the world without the pressure of having to achieve anything important. Nothing special, nothing to attain, no big deal. It's just a little thing, even when you have only one mindful inhalation during the morning. That's better than what most people are doing. Surely it's better than being heedless the whole time. Then he talks about his own practice. He says, in my first years with Ajahn Chah, I used to be very serious about meditation sometimes. I really got much too grim and solemn about myself. I would lose all sense of humor and just get dead serious. All dried up like an old twig. I would put forth a lot of effort, but it would be so strung up and unpleasant, and I'd be thinking, I've got to meditate, I've got to, I'm too lazy. I felt such terrible guilt if I wasn't meditating all the time, a grim, joyless state of mind. So I watched that, meditating on myself as a dried stick. <laughs> and the whole thing was totally unpleasant. I just remember the opposite. You don't have to do anything, nowhere to go, nothing to do. Be peaceful with the way things are now. Relax. Let go. So you have to get a sense of what you need, and if you're getting a little bit tight, relax. I remember on one, one retreat, I had this experience. I was this is doing a long retreat in the fall at IMS, and I'd... I'd really be, I'd get into it sometimes and just really going slowly and it just, at times it's so delicious when you're in that groove and you're not forcing and you're not trying to make anything happen. It's just happening and it would be painful to go faster after you've been doing this for several weeks and, and months. But at some point I started to get really tight right? and I was just getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And it kept on going on, one day after another after another. I just still keep on going slowly and I'm just getting tired. At some point I just said, this is crazy. I just need to take a break. I'm going to take an unmindful walk. Right? I'm gonna, I put on my, my jacket, put on my, my boots. I hadn't been outside for for quite some time, and it was beautiful in snow, and I said, I can't wait. I'm going to just play hooky for a little while. Mm -hmm. As I started to walk at a normal human being speed, you know, it was amazing. Left, 
right, left, right, hearing, sniffling, left, right, thinking, left, right, left, right. It was the most mindful walk, one of the most mindful walks I've ever had in my life, precisely because I stopped trying so hard and just let go. And so you really need to see, okay, what's needed to give yourself some space? And it might be the most skillful thing to do to just go for a walk in nature. Now, if it's your fifth walk in nature that day, maybe you've gone overboard. You know? A cup of tea can be one of the most skillful things to do. Eight cups of tea, you'll be going to the bathroom all the time. You know? So just be really judicious and say, is this supporting me? Is this really helping me to get balance? And then whatever you do, if it's a walk in nature or you're just having a cup of tea, be there for it. Let yourself enjoy it. Not having the idea that you should be doing it better is a tremendous relief, that you should be... The idea that effort comes from your head, from a sheer force of willpower, is really misunderstanding. The sincere effort, the sincerity, is where the effort is most skillful. Just that sincerity that says, okay, I'll be here as best I can. It comes from the heart, not from, from the head. And, uh, somebody who discovered this, he wrote me a note uh, a little while ago. He said, it is indeed a huge relief to realize that I'm not in charge of my thoughts. They come up completely unbidden. It's also a relief to know I'm not in charge of my moments of awareness that these are indeed just beautiful gifts. I think I've been laboring under the assumption that by sheer effort of will, I could manufacture awareness, and that the only reason it wasn't happening was because of laziness, weak brain power, lack of dedication, etc., etc. This shift of emphasis towards faith and sincerity of heart, letting the process evolve at its own speed, in its own direction, has made me incredibly happy. So happy that it's really hard to come back to my breath right now. Okay. Let go of thinking you have control and just come from a sincerity of heart. Continuity is really the key in practice. So whatever you happen to be doing is just as valid as anything else, just as worthy of your attention as anything else. When you can be in your room brushing your teeth and see that is just as sacred a moment, just as sacred an act as sitting in here in the hall and feeling your breath, then your day will be one seamless dance of awareness. So you can make it like a game, not that you've got a pounce on your experience, but just, ah, and there's this moment, and there's th this moment, and it becomes a dance. The transitions are when we usually lose it, going from sitting to walking, or walking back to sitting, or to our room, or showering, or those in-between times. Let that be just as worthy of your attention as sitting here in the hall. And then it becomes quite an interesting dance. If you can have that easy continuity for a day, you will find a dramatic deepening of the practice. That is, as best you can. Another key 
is, as I said a little while ago, alluding to it, is interest. Because when we're interested in something, then it's easier to pay attention. We usually operate under the idea that if something is really exciting or juicy, then it'll hold our interest. Well, you can train your heart and your mind as the mindfulness gets stronger to see everything is interesting. What is, uh, Fritz Perls, the father of Gestalt psychology, said, boredom is really a lack of attention. If you look carefully, life is happening all around us. I'm remembering when I was a kid, and maybe you had this experience too, you ever look at a a shaft of sunlight going through a window and you look up close and you see what's going on in that sunlight? How many people have done that? Okay. I used to spend a lot of time just... And if somebody would say, well, what are you doing? And I, oh, I'm watching dust. You know, it doesn't sound very fascinating. But when you're looking in that refined way, wow, life is happening here. So I was reminded this morning of, uh, of Robert uh, talking about how he got, became interested in the breath uh, in his first retreat, something that, uh, that was useful for him that I, I sometimes share. Just try this. Close your eyes. When you think that, oh, the breath is boring, what's the point? All right, try this. Close your eyes. Just imagine you've just been born, come through the womb, and you're about to take your first breath. How present can you be for it? Here it is, your first breath. And the first moment, everything that comprises it, can you be here for it? Now try this. Just imagine you've gone through a whole, full lifetime, and here you are at the end of a very full life, about to take your last breath. How present could you be for that? This last moment, letting go into the mystery. Here it is, your last breath. Is it boring? Not so boring. Now let go of beginning and end and just know that this breath The one that's happening right now has never been here before, will never be here again. Here it is. Okay. That pick up the interest a little? You can play around with that. You know, just imagine, oh, What if this is my last breath? It's great practice for that moment that we'll all meet. Or what if this is my first breath? And sometimes if you trick yourself into thinking it's it's interesting, it becomes interesting and the mindfulness itself strengthens 
And there's a whole world happening within each breath. So all of these things around effort, around right effort, around wise effort, balance of effort, have to do with meeting the moment, opening up to it in a way that's not forcing, but is connected. There's another image that uh, you might find helpful as far as how to connect, how to know how much to connect with the experience. And it's the the uh, the illustration of taking a fork and spearing a vegetable, right? Suppose like a piece of broccoli. Okay, take a fork. If you take that fork and you smash it into the broccoli, you're going to make a mess, break the plate, have it all over the place. Okay, but if you take the fork and just kind of dangle it the tines over the, over the vegetable and don't sink in, you're not going to get what you want. If you can get into it enough, but not forcing it, just really connecting, aiming the fork and connecting with it and the vegetable, then you get to eat it. And it's the same way with connecting with the breath or with a sensation or with lifting your foot and placing it down. You don't want to pounce on it, but you do want to connect with it. You want to aim your attention and just connect and feel what's really here. So all of these are balance of effort. Now, I'll just spend a little bit of time on the classical definition of right effort or wise effort, which can also be applied to our practice here. There's four aspects of of wise effort in the teachings. Two of them have to do with unwholesome states, and two of them have to do with wholesome states. The first one is guarding against unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. What does that mean? You want to guard the sense doors. You want to not put yourself in situations where you'll be fueling the fans of the embers of desire or aversion. Okay? This is both on retreat and off retreat. Okay? So for instance, suppose you are um, wanting to watch your diet. Okay? Don't get a job in a bakery shop. Okay? Not so helpful. It's going to be tough. Right? You kind of take care of what your environment is and try to be as, find out what is supportive for you to come into a sense of, of ease and balance. Here on retreat, one of the things that helps tremendously is guarding our sense doors. So, for instance, the retreat experience itself minimizes a lot of the stimulation that we find ourselves outside. There's no conversation. That creates a lot of space in the mind, you know, although it's filled up by the conversations that go on in here. But it really simplifies things tremendously. Okay? Just in the sitting and the walking and not doing a whole lot else 
in that simplicity, you start to settle down and, um, and bring about more clarity. But on, on the retreat, you might do some things particularly to help yourself around this guarding. For instance, there can be a phenomenon, if you haven't done a retreat before, there is this phenomenon where somebody just catches your eye and then you seem to be finding them everywhere and then you start thinking about them when you're near them or when you're not near them. It's called the Vipassana Romance or VR, right? (laughs) Where not having said a word, you have a whole fantasy built up about how you've just met the soulmate for your life. With the VR, okay, don't go looking for trouble, right? It'll find you anyway, but you don't have to put yourself out so that you're kind of having your radar out. Same way there's the reverse of that, the VV, or Vipassana Vendetta, where somebody was put on this retreat to test your equanimity, okay? Because everything they do is just blowing your mind, okay? VV, okay? Guard the sense doors. You might get some space from that person. You might wear a cap. You know, I just sat on the month of of March, and one of the best things for me on the retreat, just wearing that cap, and wherever I went, you know, I was just fairly contained. I'd see people, but it was like, oh, it created such a space, such an ease. You might notice in this guarding the sense doors, and guarding against unwholesome states, the intention to check people out. It's very strong. My first retreat, by the time of the end of the retreat, I knew everybody's name, even though I hadn't said a word because I knew who was the yogi job and who did this, and you know. I mean, I just had a lot to learn at that time. But I learned everybody's name, that's what I knew. It's so much simpler when you keep within your own space. And you can just notice that intention, if I don't look at this person, I'm going to die, right? You know, just who are, who's there by me, friend or foe, you know? <laughs> romance or vendetta, just, you know. And just notice, feel the intention as you're about to look, and get in touch, what am I, what's the source of this, this wanting, or this wanting to be safe? And you can learn a tremendous amount from that. So that's one thing. Just guard, guard the, the sense doors. Guarding against unwholesome states that haven't yet arisen. Second aspect of right effort, wise effort, is overcoming unwholesome states that have arisen. Okay? What does that mean? Well if you find that you're already caught in aversion, for instance. The way to overcome it is not by beating yourself up. All that does is add more aversion. God, I can't stand this aversion. I hate it. (laughs) That's not going to 
get rid of it. You're just adding one heaping portion of aversion on. The most potent way, as we'll start to include tomorrow in the instructions, is to be mindful as that hindrance arises. What does aversion feel like? Like Sally talked about that RAIN acronym yesterday. Recognize, oh yeah, this is aversion. Accept it or allow it. Okay, just let it be here. Investigate it. Bring an interest to it. What? Where do I feel it? What's that energy like? Non-identify. Not take it personally. Okay, aversion comes to everybody. It's not who I am. It's just arising right now, like a weather system. So being mindful is the most potent way to overcome any unwholesome state. But sometimes the mindfulness isn't strong enough. There's many, many different ways, antidotes, to work with difficulties. For instance, if there's a lot of aversion in the heart, doing some loving-kindness. That's a great balance. If you can't be spacious and mindful about it, bringing some loving-kindness. If you've got a lot of doubt, then you might just uh, recall up on some faith, somebody who inspires you or somebody who believes in you. If you've got a lot of wanting, saying, oh yes, if I have that, then I'll be happy. Okay, if you can, be mindful. Investigate what the wanting mind is like. If it's not strong enough, the mindfulness isn't strong enough, just Reflect on impermanence. Has there ever been a sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch that ended your desire? That said, ah, no more wanting. I'll never need another thing. Anything that you get, it might feel good for a little while, and then it passes, no matter how good you get it. Sometimes I think of the the whole spiritual journey is learning the power of delayed gratification. That that first quick hit is really often a cause of suffering. Whereas if you can restrain yourself from acting on each wanting, ah, there's a real power that comes from that. So there's many different ways to overcome unwholesome states. If there's sloth and torpor, if you can be mindful of it, If you can't, you know, okay, if I'm mindful, let me watch myself fall asleep. Sometimes that works. You ever, you might be up until three in the morning, gee, I wonder how I fall asleep, and then "Mm," like that. But when you're on the cushion, okay, try to watch yourself fall asleep. Either you will be successful or you'll be gone, okay? There are some other antidotes, as was mentioned. Stand up, take some deeper breaths, go for a brisk walk. So whatever you do in the name of overcoming that wholesome state is skillful means. That's the the second, and we're we're spending a lot of time in that aspect of right effort, how to overcome unwholesome states. Then there's two other aspects, which are developing wholesome states that have not yet arisen. What does that mean? Well, there's lots of wholesome states that we can experience. There's clarity, there's kindness, there's generosity, there's compassion, there's equanimity. Many, many wholesome states. 
what we're doing here in the simple act of being mindful is the most potent method of developing wholesome states. I'll just kind of put a little plug in for mindfulness to see how it develops wholesome states. It is a purifying factor that brings along with it an ability to let go of the pleasant without grasping, to open up to the unpleasant, to bring a friendliness and openness, to bring about equanimity. As I said in those lists of the factors of enlightenment and the the spiritual faculties, mindfulness has the property of developing all the other wholesome states. So although it might not seem like much is happening when you lift your foot and know you're lifting it, you are actually developing non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, the source of all happiness, more positively put, generosity, kindness, and clarity. And you are deconditioning the opposite. You are deconditioning grasping, greed, hatred, aversion, and delusion. Every single moment that you're mindful, isn't that cool? Isn't that neat? That's one of the things that for me is one of the most inspiring motivations to be mindful. Every single moment that I'm mindful counts. I'm deconditioning greed, hatred, and delusion and cultivating generosity, kindness, and clarity. Every single one. Then there's other wholesome states that we're developing here. Doing the loving kindness is a conscious developing of wholesomeness. Doing gratitude, just reflecting for a few moments on gratitude. If you're feeling kind of, oh, woe is me, just feeling all the blessings in your life. That can be very skillful. It creates a space of mind that then you can be mindful in. Having a a spirit of compassion, letting your heart be touched. Not that you've got to consciously muster that up, but if it's coming through, then beautiful. Let it let it just come through and let yourself feel it. Know that at the heart of what we're doing, we're cultivating all the wholesome states along with the mindfulness. We're developing the, unwholesome, the, the wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And then the last one of this right effort is maintaining and increasing wholesome states that have arisen. What does that mean? Suppose you find yourself feeling quite open-hearted. You walk outside and you see the birds, or you see, see nature, and you just feel like you love life for a moment. Okay. Instead of saying, oh well, that was a lucky moment, you know, That was a fluke. The Buddha says, pay careful attention. Not grasping it, but let yourself really let it register. Let that joy, let that connection, let that love be the subject of your mindfulness. Because the more attention you give it, the more you recognize it when it arises. It's like you're starting to tune into that 
aspect of life. Instead of just looking at what's wrong or what could be fixed, you start seeing, oh, there's so many beautiful things around. This is very skillful. The Buddha, in one discourse, he says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Whatever you think and ponder upon, frequently think and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of your mind. If you're busy looking for how things are going bad, that's what you're cultivating. If you can notice all the goodness, all the beauty, all the, the, the joy in life, that's what you start giving more life to. You don't get any extra points for seeing how awful life is. And in fact, if you miss out on all the beauty, you become very contracted. This is again from Ajahn Sumedho, a quote that I, I love. He says, Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have real insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. This is a skillful thing to do. Not only looking at it for it outside or noticing it out there, but, but particularly when you're feeling a wholesome state inside, let yourself feel the goodness of it. How good this feels. The Buddha says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome ill will and hostility. Let yourself feel the gladness, the goodness that it arises as it arises through you. The gladness that comes from reflecting on your sincerity that makes you want to be here and practice. There's something quite extraordinary that it's important to acknowledge that's right in us. So this is the four efforts, guarding against the unwholesome that hasn't arisen, overcoming the unwholesome that has arisen, developing the wholesome that's not yet arisen, and maintaining, increasing the wholesome that has arisen, being present for it. And the key to all of this is mindfulness. A balance of effort, simply the effort to be mindful, and everything unfolds from that. 
not a tight, contracted, struggling, straining effort, not such a laid-back effort, but an effort that's willing to be here and open up to life just as it is. I'll close with uh, a poem that I, I love called Walk Slowly by Dana Falls, who's a wonderful um, poet and yoga teacher. She says, It only takes a reminder to breathe, a moment to be still, and just like that, something in me settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper, and I remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we will all cross the finish line. That waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget, catch myself charging forward without even knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make the choice to stop, to breathe, and be and walk slowly into the mystery. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on May 25, 2005. It is an offering of... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.